Jesus started with 12. Imagine what those, however many little ones there, imagine what he's going to do through them throughout the years. Well, let's be turning in our Bibles to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to begin in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. You just I, I was going to warn you before you got comfortable that I was going to ask you to stand in a moment. Let's all stand together if you're able. If you can't, if it aggravates something enough to warrant sitting, don't be afraid to just remain seated. But if you're able and want to stand, let's stand together. We'll begin in John chapter 1, verse 35 very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Again, the next day, John was, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, Roman time, probably ten in the morning, so they spent the rest of the day with Jesus. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Most people believe from evidence that we have that. The other one was John, the one who's writing this, who rarely mentions himself. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, verse 41. So Andrew went and found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, or rock, or stone. The next day Jesus purposed, now this is where we're going to begin our study for today. The next day Jesus purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, have a seat. Now, how did we get here today? Why, why am I preaching this? Now, in my mind, one week leads to the another. It just one flows. So here's what happened. I was preaching the last two weeks on love, and we used the illustration of the cross, the vertical beam representing our love for God completely, love God completely, and then the intersection right here, the loving ourselves correctly, loving ourselves the way God sees us. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we have to understand what that means. And then receiving, and then we, last week we added a downward arrow so we can just receive the love of God as we've been doing this morning. How deep the Father's love for us. And just basking in that love and receiving all that God has for us, all of his grace. And so filling us up and so making us secure in who we are in Christ that then it should just overflow, it should flow out of us horizontally as we love others compassionately. And so as I was still, um, you know, that's in my mind from Sunday, and I got into my devotionals Monday, went to Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. Jacob, as Jacob left his father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah, and he was running away from Esau, basically, and sent to some of Rebekah's family in order to find a wife there who's going to find Rachel there. Jacob, on his way, sleeps at a place called Bethel, lays down, puts his head on a rock, and then he has this dream of angels on a stairway to heaven, ascending and descending, up and down and up and down. And as I read that devotionally, I thought, okay, so there's something going on there where the gates of heaven are open and and God's love and wisdom and everything, grace will be flowing down into Jacob and his prayers going back up. Something's happening there. And then I remembered in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says, I am the stairway. I'm the ladder. And I thought it would be great to study those two and see how Jesus fulfills that. And then uh, we can meditate more and more on how God loves us. Well, once I got into this text, of course, it started expanding and I saw it was quite a treasure chest, and then it took a hold of me, and, and it took me where I'm going to go with you this morning. But it will end up with Jacob's ladder and explaining how Christ does fulfill that. But we're going to study verses 43 through 51. We're going to be looking for uh, sins that we should avoid, promises that we should claim, looking for examples that we should follow, commands that we should obey, and most importantly, knowledge about God that we need to understand in order to, to understand and experience God's love for us fully and then be used by him the way he wants us to be. So let's go to verse 43. And what we're going to be looking for up above, five lessons about the interaction between Jesus and his disciples as he began his earthly ministry and began drawing disciples to himself. We learn some really important lessons here. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus purposed 
to go forth into Galilee. That word means that he, he willed it or he wanted it, he desired it, he determined it, he decided it. He wasn't just wandering about the countryside aimlessly or whimsically, just, oh, where do I feel like camping out tonight? He always was doing his Father's will, point number one. Jesus was always doing his Father's will. It says that he purposed it. I'm only going to ask you to go to a couple places in the Gospel of John this morning. So turn with me to chapter 4, verse 34. 434, this is right after Jesus has his conversation with the woman at the well. His disciples had gone into town to get some food. Jesus is hungry. It's noon. It's a hot day. They all are hungry. They come back and they realize that he had been talking to a woman in broad daylight. And so they question him about that. And Jesus says to them in verse 34, My food, my desire, the deepest desire in me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his purpose. Jesus wasn't on the earth to live for himself or to do whatever he wanted. And similarly, we are not here to live for ourselves or do whatever we want. So like Jesus, we ought to be purposing when we're doing whatever we do. Look at chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. Where does he hear it from? God the Father. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Similar to what Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Driving over here, driving to Saratoga, driving from Saratoga to here, I was praying, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. What in the world am I going to do if I jump into the pulpit and start telling you stuff that I think? It's worthless. So similarly, again, Jesus always was doing his Father's will. Look at chapter 6, verse 38. Should just be flipping a page or so. 6, 38. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, so just keep that in mind as you're reading through the Gospels, that Jesus always did the will of his Father. Everything he did was purposeful. Remember the word dei comes up over and over. It is necessary for me to go through Samaria. It is necessary for me to do this to accomplish what God has sent me to the earth to do. And that becomes an example for each one of us as disciples of Jesus. We are here to do the will of him who sent us. So just keep that in mind. It'll sort of uh, blanket the whole thing as we proceed through. Now you're in chapter, did you stay in chapter 6? Look at verse 44 for a moment. Because there's another thing we must understand. Chapter 6, verse 44 and verse 65. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So 
Can anybody come to the Father if the Father's not drawing him? Look at that verse. No one can. It is impossible. Look over at verse 65. For this reason I have said to you, Jesus said, that no one can, no one has the ability, it is an impossibility. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So remember that as we proceed through these five lessons. Nobody, so what should you be doing for that loved one, that family member, that friend, that neighbor that doesn't know Jesus? What should you be doing for them primarily? Praying for them. Praying that God would work in their life, work in their hearts, work in their circumstances in such a way that he is drawing them to himself. And then, if you're really about his will, he will show you what you need to do then to do your part in bringing him to Christ as the Father is already drawing him. So that draws... that. Just keep that in mind. That's what's happening here. As we talk about Peter, we talk about Philip, we talk about Nathaniel. God has already been drawing them. These are Jewish young men who were raised in the synagogue. They were raised listening to rabbis. They were raised with their fathers reading the scriptures on Friday evenings, on the Sabbath. And these guys were, as you're going to see, they were expecting the Messiah to come. God had done all kinds of preparatory work. He was drawing them to himself so that when Jesus said either follow me or Andrew brings Peter, Philip brings Nathaniel, they were ready. The, the ground had already been prepared. And then they came. And then God caused them to, to become believers in Jesus. So, the second lesson that we learn here about the interaction between Jesus and his disciples is that the Father draws people to himself in various ways, as you're going to see in just a moment. Again, look at verse 41. Now we go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 41. One of the two who heard John speak was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found, you're going to see the word found five times in this, these couple verses. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And then verse 42, He brought him to Jesus. Now, look at verse 43. Now, he does it different with Philip. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, doing the Father's will, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. It doesn't doesn't describe his response, but the implication is he did, because then he goes to find Nathanael, which is the next. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. These guys knew each other. These are small towns. They grew up together. They had been prepared The soil had been tilled. Seeds had been planted. But he does it in different ways. With Peter, with Andrew, it was through John the Baptist. With Andrew to Peter, Andrew brings his brother. With Philip, Jesus just said, you, follow me. And then as we see Philip then, 
Verse 45, found Nathanael, his friend, and said to him, we have found him who, whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. They had been prepared. The Messiah was going to come. Praise the Lord that God does it in lots of different ways. God's ways and not our ways, because think about it for a moment. All of us, we have our own way that we have come to Jesus. Some of you may not be there quite yet, but all of us have our own story. We all have the unique way that God has worked in our lives. But our experiences are so limited, and our understanding of Scripture is so limited. Our understanding of how God works. And so thankfully, the Father... Has, who has led millions of people to, G, to himself through Jesus. He has drawn how many people over the last 2,000 years to himself? All of them came through Jesus. John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but through me. But it was the Father drawing all of them. And he has worked uniquely in every single Christian throughout all of history and every single person in this room this morning. There's an old saying I heard years ago that I appreciate. Let God be as creative in other people's lives as he has been in yours. And another one is don't judge the outside of others by the inside of yourself. Think about that a moment. And that can go both ways. I can think, well, for me, it looked like this and it was a... It was a moment, a big moment, when I was just, should I, should I, yes, I'm going to. And I opened up my heart and Jesus came in and and my life just changed immediately. But then if I think that's the way it's supposed to happen for you, there are people in this room I know that cannot point to a moment when it happened. Some big dramatic conversion experience. My two youngest daughters... We were already Christians, hit the ground running. They've just believed ever since they were little children. Now, one of them does have an experience that you know, I think is, is interesting. I'm not sure that was the moment she was born again, but she thinks that it was a big moment in her life. But not everybody. The Puritans in early America, used to, in order for you to join the church, you had to be able to stand up front and give your conversion experience. And and it usually was some dramatic moment where you came to Christ. Well, anybody in this room can't do that? So the two ways that this can cut, I can look at you and say, or you can look at somebody else and say, well, their experience was different than mine, and I question the validity of it. Or you can judge the outside of others. Well, everybody else has this big, exciting story of how I came to Christ, and me, there's nothing really, I've just always believed. And you can think then, I wonder if I'm a Christian or not. So it can, it can mess things up. So praise the Lord. God draws people to himself in as many ways as there are people. All right? Now, given that it, it, God works in mysterious and manifold ways, is there, however, is there a primary model of evangelism? Just kind of a a basic model. And I think there is. And I think we find it in this passage. When I was a kid, 
I've shared this with some of you, so bear with me. A couple personal things are going to come out this morning. One of them is it was a snowy day, I think 1966, if I have the, the year right. But I was out shoveling people's walks and making money. And I went over to my grandpa's house, and it was freezing cold out. My hands were just freezing, so I went up to his door and knocked and came in his door, and he was watching a football game, and he just said, shh, get over here. And I came over, and I watched Bart Starr's quarterback sneak to beat the Dallas Cowboys in the Ice Bowl. Anybody familiar with that? I instantaneously became a Packer fan. And because I got excited about that, but it wasn't because my grandpa said, Tim, come here, let me explain something to you. The Packers are the most winning team, you know, that there are so far. Uh, they've won more world championships than any other team. Bart Starr's the best quarterback, for sure. And these are all true facts, but my point is, that's not how he converted me. I just experienced something, and it happened. And then I went home, and eventually my brothers caught my enthusiasm. They all became Packer fans. They're rabid Packer fans. I'm really not. I, I still, but there's something in me that it's there. And my grandkids, some of my grandkids are Packer fans today. It just, that's how it typically happens. The best advertising is what? Word of mouth from personal experience. And that is what we're seeing happen here in this, look at, again, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did, he found first his own brother Simon. And in essence, said, we found him, come and see. Then we see in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. And then Jesus could begin to disclose himself to Peter. Verse 46, and Nathanael said, well, no, back up. Philip, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, the one that we've heard about all of our lives. And they brought him. Now here's point number three then. Another lesson that we learn about the typical interaction between Jesus and his disciples is that disciples tend to make disciples. They experience Jesus deeply. Their lives have been changed. They're walking with him. They love him. And they experience his love for them. My dad, another personal quick thing real quick. In 2002, uh, my dad used to drive Mercury Marquis, big, for many people think big ugly cars, big front noses, but they're huge. Poor gas mileage. I could never, I just didn't get it. And then he said to me one day, hey, a cousin of his had died. It's 2002. He and his cousin had a 1992 Mercury Grand Marquis sitting in his garage, but he had become sick, so it had very low mileage on it. looked like brand new. But, and Dad said, you know, I think you ought to check it out. And I said, no, uh, thank you, but no thank you. He said, come and see. Jump in the car, drive over there. I got out. I looked at it. It was like brand new looking. Got in. Oh, yeah. Drove it. Mm. When I bought it, I was converted. But if my dad, he had tried, you know, they're, they're comfortable, they're this and that. It's like, no way. Now I'm in my Mercury Marquis. And I just loved it. But I had to experience it. 
And my family kidded me about it. It was the funeral car. It was the ugliest. They thought it was horrible. And to me, it was when I first drove it to Saratoga and parked out front, I was so embarrassed. I had to come in and qualify why this pastor was driving such a luxurious 10-year-old vehicle. And they were like, don't worry about it. You're, you're taking it too seriously. But I had to, and I, it was so comfortable. I loved that car. And, but again, this is it. Come and see. Experience him for yourself. But you can't do that if you're not experiencing him for yourself. Blaise Pascal was a philosopher you may have heard of. But anybody heard of Pascal's Wager? Anybody know what Pascal's Wager is? My, my. Okay. It, his wager is that, was this. Just try it. Just come. Open yourself up to Jesus and try it. And for sure, you'll find out that it's, it's true. It's real. And there, there's, I don't agree with all of that. Maybe I don't probably understand it perfectly, but there's something about it I don't like, but there's something about it I do like. If we could convince a person, I've thought of this many times, just to be open enough to study the Bible with me. I've had people come to the church over the years and they just have questions and they're, they're struggling with doubt and fear and, and yet they know that they're empty inside and they're anxious and depressed and they just and they know they need something but there's something that, that's just holding them back. And so, so you, you invite them to let's meet once a week and let's just talk through these issues and let me explain, let me introduce you to Jesus and just, just come and see. And Sometimes that is what, or I would say typically, that's what Jesus uses. We can answer people's questions, we can argue with them, we can present apologetic arguments to them, but, but, and, and those things have their place. But the, the, the way God typically does it, and it's so exciting to be a pastor of a small church like this, because I talk to people like people every week, that are just involved in other people's lives. And because they love Jesus and they know that that other person needs them, they just spend their time loving them and serving them and doing whatever needs to be done. But ultimately what they're trying to do is ask them to come to Jesus and see for yourself. So that begs a couple questions for us this morning. How can we do that? How can we expose people to Jesus? How will they see him? What did we study last week? John 13, 34, and 35. By this all men will know, everybody will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So we've got to really take love in the church really seriously. That we love each other, that we work through conflicts, that we learn how to be peacemakers, that we don't cut and run when things get hard. We learn how to work it out together. That love for one another, Jesus said, will be the evidence that people are looking for. How else? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. My friend Verl invited me to coffee. And he, I saw it in him. I saw the peace that I was missing. So it wasn't, he was not smart enough to debate with me. He was not smart enough to answer all of my 
what I thought were intelligent questions. But I saw it in him. And we drank coffee and I stayed up all night because of it. And that was good because I could just sit and process what I saw in him. He had it. I wanted it. That's what God used to bring me to Jesus. And similarly, John 14, 21, he who has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And I too will love my, my, and he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him. And I will disclose myself to him. I will show myself to you. If you're not experiencing that, listen, if you're not experiencing that, be careful if you're trying to lead people to Christ. Be careful if you're talking much about Jesus. Because you might not know what you're talking about. You might do more harm than good. Because if you can bring truths and think you're smart and quote Bible verses and stuff, and if your life isn't congruent with that because you're experiencing Jesus, it'll be hypocrisy. You could possibly uh, turn somebody away. So come to Jesus. Come and see for yourself. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And then it'll just flow out of you. Which leads us to our next point. Did you notice Peter came when Andrew's brother brought him to Jesus? What did Jesus do? He said, you're Simon. You're named after Simeon. Not a great guy in the Old Testament. You know what I'm going to call you? I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you the rock. He just, like, he knew me. Look at what Nathaniel says when he comes to Jesus. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. You're the kind of guy we're looking for. You're the kind of guy God wants. Not not you have to be that way to serve me, but you're the kind of person that every Israelite ought to be. Every Christian ought to be someone with no guile within them. Someone with a pure heart. And what did Jesus promise to the pure in heart? Blessed are the happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what he's going to offer Nathaniel. And look, look how Nathaniel responds. Verse 48. How did, how did you know me? Nobody knows me. People misunderstand me. And here's a guy I've never even met before, and he knows me. Jesus knows you. You're going to see a little bit more of that in a bit. How do you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, you thought you were alone? I saw you. That's all it took. Nathaniel answered him and said, okay, Philip said they found the Messiah, but now I know. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Wow. The fourth lesson we learn here is that Jesus' self-revelation often flips the switch of faith. My friend shared Jesus with me. I saw it in him. 
He shared one verse, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. That was, the Holy Spirit was revealing Jesus to me. So that when I sat on the welder at Donaldson's, you've all heard it a hundred times, and I looked up and there was Jesus, and he was knocking at the door of my heart, and I opened it up. He had revealed himself to me. My friends said, come and see. And then Jesus revealed himself to me. And it flipped the switch of faith. And I was made into a new creature at that moment. That's how it can happen. Not, not that exact way in anybody else's life, but that's how it can happen. But generally, it is that knowing that Jesus knows us, knowing that Jesus sees us, and then hearing the word of Jesus. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Uh, that's Romans 1.16. Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ or the word about Christ. And so that has to be there coupled with the authentic relationship that a person has with Jesus so that they can see him in us, see that it's real, that's typically what God uses to flip the switch. It isn't and So just listen. It isn't like an insurance salesman coming to your house, explaining all the benefits, you being convinced and then sending in the signed application with the first month's premium, and then you're, you're in. That's not what it is. It is a transaction that happens when Jesus reveals himself to us, and we see it, and, and we realize that he knows us and is inviting us to this personal thing. And, and it looks different in every one of our lives, but this is basically the dynamics of what is going on. And then God opens up our heart and we believe and then we enter into a... When he said, follow me, he wasn't talking about what we're doing on our phones now, following people. He wasn't talking about, you know, my followers, my very few followers on Facebook. Go, the, the number goes up and down all the time. When he said to Philip, follow me, he was saying, you like he did with Peter and James and John, and Andrew, leave your nets behind. You come after me. It's a whole life commitment. I'm told that back, back in Jesus' day, it was a really uh, a prestigious thing in a sense, I guess. And I don't know that much about it. But for a, a young man to follow a rabbi, like Paul followed Gamaliel, he learned from Gamaliel. That was a prestigious thing to do. He could talk about that later like people would have been impressed. Okay? These guys, Philip, the, John, Andrew, Peter, Jay, these are guys that kind of missed the boat. So they're fishermen. They're cleaning fish. They're guts all over. They're mending nets. That's what their life is right now, living in poverty. That's where they were at. And now here comes Jesus. It's just such a crew that he draws to himself. And I'll come back to that after a little bit. But Jesus just reveals himself, flips the switch. And sometimes getting saved, we talk about that, can seem so, I, I just think, it can seem so canned and truncated and reduced to 
hell insurance, and having your sins forgiven. Now, both are wonderful, but they're not the whole story. Here, you know, Philip, they don't know anything more than he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Come and see. Come here. And they're just thrilled. They don't know anything. But you notice the writings of John as he matures and walks with Jesus and gets to know him better and better as Peter does that. When they write their letters, it's, it's not sign here in four spiritual laws and a real canned presentation of the gospel to have your sins forgiven. It's a full, uh, beautiful thing that just flows out of their walk with Jesus. And I think as I'm growing a little bit more and more, I tend to present the gospel to people in different ways depending on the situation. You can, if you really love them, you're really listening to them and you're really seeing what, what do they need? What are they looking for? How are they hurting? Where are they empty? And you're listening to that because you love them. And then you're able to say, well, me, you know, Jesus does this for me in those situations and come and see for yourself. It becomes more nuanced. Do you see what I'm saying? It should. It shouldn't always be. I, I, nothing against the four spiritual laws and steps to peace with God pamphlets. They are useful. But it can't just be just that forever. I think it should grow. All right, now let's get to the last and really fun point. Look at verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to Nathanael, because Nathanael, Nathanael was just shocked. He's just blown away. This guy knows me. This is, I'm looking face to face into the Messiah that we've all been waiting for for. Hundreds and hundreds of years that we talk about all the time. This was our expectation. And here he is. I'm looking him in the face. And it's an unlikely person. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't even, I'm not even sure how that fits Scripture for sure because he didn't know anything about Bethlehem at that time where Jesus was actually born. But... This is what Jesus says to Nathanael, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That was enough. Do you believe? Oh, you'll see greater things than these. Can you imagine Nathanael 10 years later looking back after he saw Jesus perform all the miracles? He was with him. After he saw Jesus die on the cross and was raised three days later and saw the risen Christ. Watched him go up into heaven, ascend into heaven. Saw the early church born, himself been given the gift of healing and the power that he saw. The things that he experienced in the next 10 years, he would have looked back at this and thought, you know, that wasn't very a very big deal, really. But it was enough at the time. Jesus said, you're going to see so much more than this. Look at verse 50. And he said to him, truly, truly, amen, amen, this you can take to the bank. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nathaniel, you're going to see the heavens open. Now he's referring to Jacob's dream. He's the fulfillment of Jacob's dream. 
He said, you're going to see the heavens open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heaven came down when Jesus came down. The way of access to God was here. John 14.6 The bridge, the cross, the bridge between sinful man and holy God has been filled with the cross of Jesus. The curtain was torn in two. So here's what I've got for our fifth lesson, is that Jesus guarantees much more to come. You ain't seen nothing yet. Are you experiencing that? Is it more and more? Is it, I'm reading my Bible again this year and I'm following that and I read that and that's the 30th time I've read that and it's, it's brand new. And I see more and more. The creator, listen, the creator, the sustainer, the king of the universe came to the earth, he walked the earth, he accomplished the, the ancient plan of redemption God had designed. And he's still calling and filling, uh, fulfilling his purpose on the earth. He is, Jesus is still purposeful at every moment. And he's calling people to follow him. And he's changing those people. He's making those people holy. He's transforming those people by his Holy Spirit into his own image. And what's he asking us to do? 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Let me just read it to you. Listen and, and think about this. Think about those first disciples and think about yourself. For consider your calling, brethren... This is the Apostle Paul. Consider your calling. That there was not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the fishermen, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are so that no man should boast before God. He called you. He's calling you. Just ordinary, normal, not the richest, not the smartest. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me now. Not the smartest. Not the best looking, not the cleverest, not the funniest. He just calls us normal people to follow him. And what does he want us to do? Richard Baxter, a Puritan uh, pastor way back hundreds of years ago, wrote this. Dost thou live close by them or meet them in the streets (coughs) or labor with them? Are they your co-workers? or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls or the life to come? If their houses were on fire, thou wouldst run and help them. And wilt thou not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? 
if someone's house was on fire, would you not, would we not run? And it wouldn't matter how good a dream they were having, we would wake them up because we'd want to help them. So shouldn't we be at least asking the question? Just asking the question. So we don't get weird and destroy all the relationships we have by being weird. But shouldn't we be asking ourselves the question, I've had all these relationships and I work with this person and I meet that person regularly. And for you, it might, so I don't, want to get you, I don't want you to get weird here. I have to mention Jesus in the gospel every single time we talk. Be careful with that. It's got to be the Holy Spirit doing it. But should not my life be displaying the fruit of the Spirit to them? And am I not sinning when it doesn't? Yes, I am. And I do. And we blow it. But shouldn't we be asking ourselves the question, is my life, whether I say it explicitly or I just live it or I just love them and try to serve them and look for some way I can listen or be helpful to them, shouldn't my goal be, shouldn't my, isn't my purpose to at least move them a little bit closer to that place where maybe somebody else will step in and say the words and they'll hear the gospel and Jesus will reveal himself to them and flip the switch? But should not my life be about... Come and see. Let people see it in me. Invite them to church. Invite them to visit with a Christian friend who may have experienced what they experienced. Whatever. Just be open to that. Be praying about that. Lord, how do you want to use me in these people's lives that you have entrusted into my life? So, ordinary people, you and me, us here in this church, learning to love one another, learning to be more and more like Jesus every day, drawing near to Jesus, being in his word, letting him disclose himself to me day by day, experiencing a deepening love relationship with Jesus, receiving that from the Father so that it can just overflow as we invite people to Jesus. So will you bow your heads with me now and meditate on this passage for a bit before we come to communion? What's God saying to you? And it might just start with, hey, I just really need to receive his love. I've been serving him out of duty. I've been serving him out of guilt. I just need to let him love me so much that I become secure enough to really love other people. Whatever it is that he's working in your heart, just let him, just talk to him now for a few minutes.